Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 2nd of November 2020 and this is episode 182. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian George Morton Jack about his recent book on India and the Great War. This is titled The Indian Empire at War, The Untold Story of the Indian Army in the First World War. This book is published by Abacus in a new updated paperback edition just out. George spoke to me over the phone from his home in London. Hi George, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well thanks Tom and thank you so much uh, for having me on. And uh, so a little bit about myself in that I'm a historian uh, of course and I live in London. My roots as a historian really uh, from studying history uh, at Oxford University where I studied global and imperial partly as a postgraduate and that certainly set me in a a certain direction uh, which was partly that I wrote my first book on the First World War for Cambridge uh, University Press and now my new book uh, just out in paperback uh, The Indian Empire at War uh, following that. But as to getting interested in the Great War I think it's so important to see the war as part of how we understand the modern world. And I think this is really at the heart of of why I became interested. And by that, I mean, we need to to think about the Great War as something that is globally significant. And it was, for me, perhaps the seminal global event of the modern world. It's really at the the root of the world today. And to understand our world today, we need in part to understand how the world worked, how it changed 14 to 1980. And I was inspired in particular by by historians like Sumit Sakar or Michael Howard and their work on the war's social impact. And they, among among others, sparked my interest in how we can understand the Great War is involving societies all around the world. And once we do that, we can begin to see the First World War and the meaning and relevance of that middle word, the world, 1914-18, uh, could do with some more explaining, I felt. Can you start by giving us an overview of your book, The Indian Empire at War? Well, the book is the global history of the First World War, and it's telling the story of the 1.5 million or so Indian or South Asian servicemen and their British officers and their British generals and their British political leaders, and how they worked together to experience the war as a global event. And the book is, is the story of how the Indian Army served on, at my count, more fronts across the continent than any other army. And in the process, its men visited about 50 different countries on today's map. And again, at my count, that's more uh, than the men of, of any other army in in the world. And through that extraordinary range of experience, what the book does is tell individual stories. Uh, it's a narrative history of India's World War. And there are some extraordinary characters, such as uh, the British General James Wilcox, who was sacked uh, on the Western Front, effectively, for trying to limit how much Indian soldiers were sent forward in British attack, which he thought were pointless. And he's a very curious example of a general uh, who tried not to be aggressive, tried to save his men at times. And also uh, other amazing characters, uh, the Indian officer, Uh, Amar Singh, who wrote what's believed to be the longest diary uh, handwritten continuously uh, ever, which he wrote between the 1880s and 1940. And of course, he he wrote that part during the First World War. And that's a fantastic source. And another individual story among among others is the Indian soldier, a Muslim called Mia Mast, who deserted the Indian army on the Western Front and became a German agent in captivity in Germany, and then went on to serve the Germans during the war as a secret agent in Eastern Europe, into Turkey, and then in Afghanistan, and then into what's now Pakistan, uh, all in the First World War. 
And it's through experiences of people like this that we can see the First World War afresh. And I think that's what the book really does. It's looking at the First World War, looking at it globally, but through individual stories and and telling uh, how the war was experienced from an an individual point of view. It's it's looking at the whole event uh, afresh. So why do you think your research is important? Well, I think there are two answers uh, I give to that. And the first is that I think the subject of India in the First World War has, in the last hundred years, been relatively neglected. And that's not to say that there isn't already, uh, before my book, and, and, uh, and, and also coming out recently, a lot of great, great work by other historians on India and the First World War. And in particular, uh, we have uh, Shantanu Das, uh, Rana Chinna, and, and others. And I've, I've depended very much uh, on their research and often their help. But what it didn't seem we had, and what uh, I believe my, my book is the first example of, is a single global narrative history of the Indian Army in, in the Great War, told through personal stories, and not focusing on a particular front, but on all the front, comparing these, and through that, as I've said, telling the Great War uh, afresh. So I think looking at India in the First World War is a neglected area. And let's not forget that India at the time was a vast society times greater uh, than British society by population. And it's extraordinary how relatively little attention given uh, to such a big society, important experience uh, of the First World War. And my book is the first narrative military history of the Indian Army's global war. And I think it's extraordinary that uh, that could even be so, given that the war ended 100 years ago. But beyond the the idea that India has has been neglected, and there's something that we need to catch up on almost as uh, in our history in appreciating India's role more. I think it's really important to understand how much shared history there is here between different communities and different parts of the world. And I'd say that the area of research and the stories in the book are important because they're very much part of British history. And that's because they're really part of imperial history, which is an extremely wide uh, concept. But within that, there's so much history which is British within the history of the British Empire. And I don't think those that, that those imperial histories are told uh, as much as they should be. And I know I'm, I'm one of an increasing chorus who's, who's saying that uh, in recent time. But I think looking at the First World War and the contribution of the Indian to the British war effort is really about appreciating more of what British history uh, really was beyond, say, familiar uh, British army stories of, of the Western Front. You use new sources uh, in the book. Tell us about them and what insight did they give you into India and the Indian army in the Great Well, there was one source which in particular unlocked the history of India and the Great War for me. And it was really the main reason for writing the book. And it came to me uh, by an extraordinary stroke uh, of good luck because I was able to find uh, just outside New York a particular treasure trove of unpublished source material. And uh, this material now sits uh, in the British Library and there are also copies of it at a military archive uh, in Delhi. But it's the only known collection of Great War Indian veteran interview transcript. And the collection amounts perhaps a thousand pages or so from the 1970s and early 1980s when the last surviving Indian veteran were interviewed. And the transcripts were handed to me by the American historian who was part of the team uh, that did the interviewing and wrote down uh, the answer. And the, the insight that these transcripts give is really looking at the war in hindsight, but from the point of view of the Indian veteran. And that's so important because there's a relative dearth of sources uh, by Indian veterans. Unlike, say, many uh, British Army veterans, Indians tended not to write their own uh, memoirs or, or have the same tradition of picking up a pen after the war ended to write uh, their point of view about it. And what we get through 
the transcript and these voices from the 1970s and 1980s is Indian veterans speaking as free men compared to what they were during the war, uh, which was British subject in, in effect of, of uh, the British Empire. And by that, of course, they were colonial subject and in an extremely difficult and painful position uh, with the British as their rulers. And there was a lot at the time they weren't even allowed to write or they could get into extreme trouble with colonial law if they spoke their mind, even being executed in some Indian soldiers, they spoke against the British. But what the transcripts really bring out is it's full of thoughts and reflections from Indian soldiers saying things that they weren't really in a position to say in public uh, during the war. And this is really about their position as colonial subject. And just by, I'll, I'll give a couple examples from the book about the kind of things that in the transcripts, Indian veterans of the Western Front here uh, were saying about what they felt about their service. There's one Sikh, for example, who said, I felt that Indians were deprived of their right. We felt that our social setup should be on the new lines like that of France and Europe. And there's another veteran saying, we felt we should be given liberty and freedom, which the French people uh, were enjoying. And I think we, we can all appreciate quite easily that Indian soldiers were colonial subjects but it's a separate matter to actually unpack what that meant and, and to even try and look at it from away from the British point of view and try and look at it from what, what the war was like if you're a colonial subject or an Indian at the time and there are some veterans in the transcript who talk about it. for example there's one veteran who said uh, the French told us that we should fight for our own country and advised us to be free from the British yoke and he went on to say we came to know that the British had been treating us as slaves and this is a common remark in the transcripts of Indian soldiers looking back at the First World War and one of them says we were slaves and this is how they, they felt looking back at the war and what it was like to serve at the British as colonial subject. So the insight that these extraordinary transcripts give is these voices of Indian soldiers saying how, how the world looked from their point of view. And there aren't veteran transcripts like this that have been found anywhere else. And they're absolutely central to the book. I'll unmute before I go to the next one. Yeah. So before the Great War, what was the Indian Army? What was its size, structure and purpose? Well, the Indian Army before the Great War, its size to start with, it had around 150,000 Indian combatants, as they, was, they were known. And that, that means men who were trained uh, with firearms, broadly speaking, uh, and to fight in, in, the, in the front line. And alongside them, there are about 32,000 uh, what were known as non-combatants, meaning men who, who generally didn't bear arms, but were working in more supportive roles that we might call logistics today, say to do in, uh, with medical care or providing food. And then at the same time, there are about 35,000 uh, reservists and then an additional 20,000 men of the so-called imperial service troop of India's princely states. So these were the parts of uh, imperial India that weren't a part of British India, but were nominally independent states. And they, they took up about a third of the territory of what we would now see uh, as India. But altogether, that means the Indian army was about 250,000 uh, men before the war. And during the war, it expanded to have a total of one and a half million recruits. So it really had uh, an astonishing growth uh, during the war. And its structure is really about an extraordinary collection of people from different parts of the world and how they fitted together. And in, in thinking of the Indian army in that way, we can see how armies uh, reflect the societies that produce them. And British imperial society was, was very complex. And that's really shown in the Indian army with, with quite how many places its men came from and quite how many different communities they represented and how many religions they had. And if we start looking at questions of how many religions were represented in the Indian army or how many languages men spoke, it becomes clear that the Indian army was the most diverse army socially or culturally or linguistically uh, in the world. And so to look into what that means, there were about nine and a half thousand British officers in the Indian army. But some of them were born and raised uh, in British India. Some of them uh, were from Australia, some were from Ireland, some were from Canada, uh, some were, were from Jamaica even. And again, that shows uh, a lot of diversity there of where the British officers were from. But the subordinate mass of Indian officers and ranks came from more than now seven different countries across South Asia. And there were mostly villagers belonging to the British. 
provinces. They also came from other areas such as independent Nepal, some, some were Afghan, some, some were Burmese, some were Bengalis, some were Gujaratis, some, some were Gurkhas, some were Marathas, some were, some were Punjabis or Tamils or some were Tibetan. And it really is an extraordinary long list if it was to be looked at anthropologically of tribes, of clans, of castes, of nationalities, so many different places and so many different people. But the structure of the army they were in is, is all about the empire in that you have British officers on top who are in charge, and they could be as young as 19. And underneath them was the mass of Indian soldiers who effectively didn't have the right to have the same status or political rights as the British officer. So the structure of the Indian army is all about colonial control. And the structure involves very subjected to, such as flogging, which had been banned uh, decades before in the British Army is inhumane, still remained in the Indian Army, because through uh, the eyes of the, the colonial official mind, as it were, the Indian soldier uh, was racially different, was subordinate, and had to be treated differently to white men. And the structure of the Indian Army is very much about the colonial world and how the Indian soldiers were subject to all sorts of controls based on racial lines and segregation and discrimination. And, and, and a, big, a big example of this is how an Indian soldier uh, couldn't rise in his regiment to a, a, state, a status equal to the British soldier. There were special ranks of Indian officers which applied only uh, to Indian, and it was only the British officers in general who could be captains or majors or colonels, or the ranks were more familiar, familiar with in, uh, in, in, in regiment. But the purpose of the pre-war Indian army was, was to serve at the forefront of British imperial defence, which means ultimately serving uh, the defence of the British Empire on its periphery more than the central areas of, uh, of European security. Well, that changed in 1914, of course. So up until 1914, the Indian Army is fighting a wide variety of wars in Africa, in Asia, in different parts of the Indian Ocean. And that's really its role. It's, it's a force. It's a tool of British uh, imperial defence. Mm -hmm. So where did the Indian Army uh, serve during the Great War? Well, about... One million Indian troops served overseas against three of the central powers. So that's Germany, the Ottoman Empire or Turkey, and also Bulgaria. But most of uh, the Indian army sailed away from India in, in seven Indian expeditionary forces formed in 1914 to 1915. And uh, the first of them that's had the most attention was Indian Expeditionary Force A, which went to France and Belgium or the Western Front. But there were other Indian expeditionary forces that went uh, to East Africa, serving in what was British East Africa and now Kenya, also German East Africa, now Tanzania but also down into Portuguese at Mozambique, as it was in the First World War. And then beyond East Africa, there were Indian soldiers serving in Ottoman Iraq or Mesopotamia, as, as the British uh, knew it for much of the war. And also in Iran, for, Indian forces went to, and other Indian expeditionary forces they went to Egypt. And from there, they went up into what was Ottoman Palestine and also Syria, serving in places uh, which are now Israel too. And at the same time, Indian troops uh, were sent uh, to Gallipoli, Southeast Europe, to fight the Turks there. And Indian troops also fought and not in the formal Indian Expeditionary Force in smaller Indian Army contingent uh, very widely across continent and that included Indian forces that were sent uh, to fight the Germans or the Turk uh, or others in Cameroon the Sahara Desert also Indian troops served in Italy and Greece they served in the Caucasus they served in Arabia they served in Central Asia they served in China and also there's there's a map uh, in the book which I really enjoyed putting together because I, I thought the Indian Army served in so many places hasn't been put together visually so I, I made a map uh, with the help of a, a map expert, of course, uh, who, who drew it, but bringing together and showing all the places the Indian soldiers served. And as I said, they served in more countries today as the men of any other in the world. Extraordinary to see that double split, double pay uh, map shows all the places. So why did South Asians choose to fight in, in the Indian Army? Well, in, in looking at this, I think it's really helpful to think about how the Indian crew recruits could have motivations that, that could be shared or, or could be separate from one uh, soldier to another. And to illustrate that, some troops uh, joined up seeking a long 
a professional career with material rewards from British service, including uh, a pension or uh, a regular wage, for example. And often they, they, they might be following a family tradition of soldiering. Some communities had particularly strong traditions of that, uh, including Sikh. But uh, alongside that, there were also, uh, for a lot of troops, almost intangible aspect of, of, uh, of why they decided to go into British service in the Indian Army. And for some of them, it could have been, uh, they could have got from the army an enhanced sense uh, of self-respect through the routine challenge uh, of military life. And for example, they might have had have parents encouraged say, to join up before the war uh, to have a military life and that to have benefits for them. And at the same time, there were some troops during the war who joined up for short service only just for a few years or a few months, some of them, hoping for uh, the dependable cash wage that soldiers got and also food benefit of military employment uh, state. And at the same time, you might have uh, troops who joined up during the war for a chance to travel and see the wider world. That could have been an aspect for some if I joined the army, travel away in district or village or province, see the wider world. And alongside that, it's important to remember that some Indian troops were coerced into military service. And this happened in particular towards the end of the first, where the, the colonial recruitment structure would uh, have the result of sending recruiters into villages and essentially forcing men by force, physical force, to join up against their will, dragging service. And so we have to be careful in thinking about how uh, South Asians might have chosen to fight in army. Some, uh, it wasn't a choice, it was something forced. And how would you characterise South Asians' experience of the war? Well, for me, and this is something which I try and bring across in the book through the personal stories, is it's that we can characterise the South Asians' experience as soldiers in the war. We're looking at two strands, I think. And, and the first would be uh, geographic, in appreciating how the experience of the Indian soldier during the First World War really could be uh, global. And by that, just to give one personal story uh, that's in the book, there was one Muslim soldier who joined up before the war called uh, Osala Khan. And he was uh, a Muslim, a professional soldier, having joined up as a teenager in the 1890s, uh, looking for a long career in the army, uh, which, is, which uh, his, his father had done. And incredibly, we know almost for certain that uh, this Muslim soldier, Osala Khan, was the first Indian soldier uh, to en enter the trenches in Flanders in October 1914, at the head of the first Indian company that went into the front line with the British expeditionary force. And he served on the Western Front for all of 1915, including uh, visiting had been instituted as a new uh, decoration for bravery. And then much more widely than the Western Front, and his travels on war service took him in total uh, an incredible distance of approximately 23,000 miles by sea, rail, bus, boat, motor car, or on the mark. And that means that besides France and Belgium, he also served in, in what are now Egypt, Kenya, Tanzania, and India before he came back to England again uh, in 1919. So by saying that I'd char characterise South Asians' experience of the war is geographic. It's really saying that there were a significant number of Indian soldiers whose experience of the war was on multiple fronts. They would fight in one place one year, fight in another place another year. And it's through looking at their experiences in that way that we begin to see what did they say about the Western Front compared to what did they say about fighting in Iraq? Or if they'd been on the Western Front and were in East Africa, uh, what comparisons did they make uh, between the places? And it's, a, it's really when you start taking that comparative approach through the personal point of view that you can really see the First World War afresh. Uh, not just, say, from a community point of view, by looking at the point of view of an Indian compared to a British, but having a soldier who, say, fought in Flanders in 1914 and 1950, but then is fighting in a jungle in, Af in East Africa. And, say, and, and you know, what, what experience did they have that was different? And how can that tell us about the First World War? But the second strand I was talking about uh, of what characterizes South Asian experience in the First World War is a, a tragic one of, of, of suffering. And 
there was suffering and battle of wounds of, of being missed at home or missing those at home, losing loved ones or friends. But the, the common strand on, the on and off the battlefield uh, in the suffering of the Indian soldiers was very much their status as the colonial subject. And within that, it was the racial discrimination that they suffered uh, day by day. And it's very difficult today to recapture the, the frustration and the anger and the suffering that went with being uh, a colonial subject. And I think it's often something that people uh, don't spend enough time uh, trying to come to terms with today and trying to look at the experiences of colonial subjects years, what that was and how it, how that experience uh, relates to the world today. And that, that's certainly a big uh, part of my book. But just thinking about what it was like to be an Indian soldier from that point of view of suffering as a colonial subject, there's a strong element of every day an Indian soldier, if he's, say, he's on a train moving from one part of, a France, one part of France to another, or if he's on a boat moving away from France to go to France, or if he's receiving his pay, absolutely everything is conditioned by the fact that the Indian soldier was racially discriminated because their pay is less, their uh, discipline is harsher with uh, corporal punishment in a way which British soldiers uh, didn't have because they were seen as racial superior. Or Indian soldiers weren't allowed to enter certain rooms or be kicked out of a certain train carriage because they weren't white. These things happen day by day by day by day again and again for the Indians. And I think uh, that has to be recognised if we're going to try and characterise overall war experience was uh, for them. And so how did this uh, war experience affect the Indian army as a whole? Well, I think a big part of this is that we can look at the Indian army as an institution. And as an institution, as we were saying earlier, its function was ultimately serve the ends of British imperial defence. So that could be defending the empire, say, within India, against people who are seen locally to be a threat to the colonial regime, or the Indian army as a, as a tool of British force abroad, again, serving ultimately in the interest uh, of defending the empire. And if we look at the Indian army and how the war affected it as a whole, in 1914, the Indian army goes to war as this tool of British imperial defence. But what does it become during the war as a whole? How does the war affect it? And how does it change as that, as that, as that kind of tool in British hands? And the answer is absolutely extraordinary because it develops, as we were saying, from about 250,000 men up to a total of 1.5 million recruits. But it does that as it does that, with all sorts of increased industrial output and increased numbers of officers and everything that went into the Indian Army, by 1918, it's emerged as a much more modern army that specialises in fighting other modern armies to the extent that it becomes extraordinarily powerful in the Middle East in particular, become the dominant force of occupation uh, across the Middle East. And again, that's for British ends of imperial uh, security. So if we're looking at how the war affects the Indian Army as, as an institution, it affects it by modernising, by transporting it abroad. And there, the Indian Army becomes is even more powerful tool uh, of the British Empire. And in particular, that's in places like Palestine or Iraq. But the Indian Army by 1918 is the primary force of foreign occupation. And it's done it uh, by defeating uh, the Turkish army. And it's done that because it was able to develop into a much more modern for force, fighting in quite modern uh, mobile ways, say using uh, mechanised transport as part of its fighting uh, by 1918. But otherwise, looking at the more personal point of view of how the Indian Army developed uh, in the First World War, there's strong evidence, if we look at it at a more personal point of view for the Indian soldiers, that those soldiers who served by 1918 had evolved different senses of individuality and of community identity through their uh, war service. So individually, we can look at the experiences uh, of a foreign countries that the Indian soldiers had and the many tests of war they went through. And these experiences gave the Indian recruits often an enhanced understanding of how they deserved equal political and social treatment alongside the other peoples of the world, like the French, they'd usually not met before 1914. And the war gave them a sharpened sense of how their rights had been denied under British rule, and they had a higher expectation of fairer or equal treatment. And this didn't necessarily equate to just uh, immediate or open demands from them for Indian independence of the British Empire. Rather, they were all the readier to question and oppose uh, British controls compared to before. And on community identity, some 
Indian soldiers mix as they hadn't before, for example, in hospital gardens, say in England. And this, this would mean mixing with other men of other, other castes, religions or regions that they might have come across in army. And through that, that kind of socialising, it eroded mental barriers, I think they had of community difference up to 1914 and often prompted them to feel uh, like, like they had more in common with and much more sympathy for uh, men of other communities. And war changed Indian recruits' perspectives in other ways, like sparking a new determination in many for better education of their family, uh, including among women, which they had seen uh, in France, say, with uh, girls going to primary school, and so that their children could have expanded opportunities in the world as a result. So it's it's very much that personal element of how Indian soldiers went out into the world, saw things themselves, and led them to, to rethink their world and how it could improve. And the book's packed with stories about how they did that. So, you know, that example there, a particularly powerful one I found was how Indian soldiers wanted better lives uh, for their children. And how was the Indian Army of 1914-1918 remembered following the war? Well, the, there's, there's, a, there's a curious idea recently about how the Indian Army has been forgotten. There, there are a number of headlines, say, from the BBC and others using that idea of how the Indian Army hasn't been remembered, as it were. But following the war, especially in the 1920s and 1930s, there was a great deal done uh, by the British to uh, commemorate or memorialise uh, the Indian Army and try and remember its participation in the war in a particular way. And there really was a flood of, of books and memorials following uh, Remember an Army. And these books and memorials were always uh, created in some way, shape, in Britain. And that meant that the memories, as they were created in the book, the British would either portray the Indian soldiers as weak or white colonial mentality, produced, or it would be commemorating the Indian soldiers' bra- bravery to show how the Indian soldiers fought for the Empire. twist that rolled them as a way of binding tight together after the first with Indian soldiers fought for it, the I fought the empire also helped to strengthen what they represent under the British. So these ideas of, of empire and memory, almost in favour of the British Empire, uh, a big element of how they remembered after. But it's really interesting to look into that and unpick it, and it's extremely uh, revealing uh, if we do that about how the the Indian soldier was really being uh, remembered. If we look at uh, in this way in the 1920s and 1930s, particular to do with the uh, Commonwealth War Graves Commission today, or the Imperial War Graves uh, as it was back then. In that we know, of course, there are headstones of Whitepool and stone engraved. With name, number and regiment or with, with a family inscription uh, for many British soldiers. But how many headstones are there like that for Indian soldiers? And it's very revealing that there are certainly a lot of similar headstones for Indian soldiers. In England, there are some in Hampshire and, and Surrey uh, near the old Indian hospital sites on the south coast. There are also some in Germany and Europe more widely, or some in Italy. And these are all quite uh, familiar if we look at them. But then the majority of Indian soldiers didn't serve in Europe, they served more widely uh, afield than in Asia and Africa. And how many headstones are there there, like these ones we see so often in Europe or in the Western Front for the British soldiers? And the answer is they're much, much there, despite Indian soldiers having fought alongside the British throughout the war and the many war dead uh, of India outside Europe. And the answer as to why there aren't so many of these headstones or gravestones memorialising outside is that, frankly, the British decided that they weren't going to make the resources available to have that kind of commemoration, and they weren't going to take the trouble to bury Indian individually, as they did for the British, say, on the Western Front. And this less left many Indian graves to be lost, in some cases following deliberate British abandonment, because Indian graves were often officially deemed not worth marking or maintaining. And they would be, for example, uh, just a mass grave for Indian soldiers or a mass memorial for Indians, uh, which didn't name often Indian soldiers by name, but the colonial authorities memorialised Indians by giving, say, a joint local stone memorial. And that, that's one of those famously uh, in southern Iraq. But what this shows us is that the Indian soldier was never quite memorialised the British soldier. And again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the Indian soldier's position as a, as a colonial subject. And the updated edition of my book looks uh, in a little bit of detail at this question of gravestone, how Indian soldiers weren't buried or given uh, lasting memorials to, to them in graveyards like the British soldiers. And you know, it, it's, very, uh, it's very uncomfortable and awkward to think through why that
that was and how the British treated the Indian soldier uh, back then are different to the British soldier. But if we want to understand the First World War, I think it's inescapable uh, to go down that road. And my penultimate question is, what was the legacy of World War I for the soldiers of the Indian Army? Well, as you can imagine, with an army that's so diverse, with so many people, so many places, you're going to get a very complex and wide-ranging uh, legacy. But I'd say that one aspect of this is that in South Asia today, the prehistory of of, uh, of Indian armed forces is, of course, Indian soldier fought in 1480, as any man front. And this legacy is also quite complicated. The Indian soldier of 100 years ago, that service separable from a colonial state, and there are a lot of tension seeing the Indian soldier state part of the prehistory force. And at the same time, there are legacies and families across South Asia down the generation kept memory of wartime suffered loss, pride, brave, or memories of heightened expectation. Today in families in India are still memories past death remember among today's generation. And I think we can also discern an Indian legacy in the wider world. And again, in, in quite expansive ways, but no less complicated. So you can look at the Indian soldiers say in France, fighting cause of freedom, attributed to global development, democracy fight aside of the British in one sense to defeat German uh, militarism, German rule and dominance over uh, the continent of Europe. And that was certainly an aspect which uh, the, the official commemoration of the First World War for the centenary in 2014 to 2018 uh, dwelled on from an international point of view. But also from another point of view, less seen, I think, during the centenary of the First World War, is that the Indian soldier who served, say, in Iraq or Palestine was serving to secure or expand uh, the British Empire and ultimately also its colonial exploitation. And through serving in the First World War, we shouldn't forget that Indians serving on the Indian home front were also fighting local rebels. The Indian army didn't just fight abroad during the First World War. 500,000 of its men never left India, and many of those uh, served up to 1914, fighting against communities in India on behalf of the British. So it's an extraordinary legacy of, we can look at it as, say, a, a, a legacy involving democracy in France, but at the same time, the Indians fighting people who could be seen as their own company uh, back on the home front. And that, that shows how complex the legacy is. And I think the main legacy that's been seen more recently in Britain is the Indian soldier of 1940 providing a focal point of social togetherness. The idea that the legacy of the Indian soldier is that he represents historic military service for Britain, common with uh, white British troops, and that togetherness being can be looked past by together at today. So really an, an extraordinary range of legacies, but ultimately part of how the Indian soldier has been remembered. And again, that, that's an important part of the book. We've got to understand how the war was remembered in different parts of the world uh, to understand how people saw it. And finally, we're coming up to Christmas. We've been brought broadcast today in early November. Where can people where can people find out more about India and the First World War? Well, I, I think what what we what I'd say is that uh, there are writers recently who, in particular, have been doing great research into the Indian soldier and and, and who the Indian soldier was. And uh, Shantanu Das, in particular, who's uh, a book on on uh, India Empire and First World War culture, uh, which is a paperback like mine, but is is an absolutely extraordinary uh, and original book looking at literature and art and images uh, and, and, and sounds in, in, in some cases to really try and unravel what the war was like for the Indian soldier in, in, in a very intimate way rather than in the more military narrative way, uh, say, compared to my own book. And also, I, I think uh, another book I'd recommend finding out about more uh, on India in the First World War is V. Walker's recent book, Major Tom's War, which is uh, more of a British officer's story and uh, looking again at, at slightly more military perspectives perhaps and uh, but both those books based on on great research and uh, the kind of book where you really really can find out more and obviously your book is available for christmas where can people get that i, I think it's available pretty widely so I, I, I think any uh, bookseller could get hold of it for you or there's always Amazon or the traditional places where, where i think you can find it george thank you very much for your time thank you so much fantastic You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. 
Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.